Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's. There is no cure, unless, unless you ask people who've experienced their Parkinson's symptoms vanish. Joining me on this podcast journey is reporter and producer Nikki Reitmeyer. Okay, so symptoms just vanishing, disappearing for no reason? Well, there's a reason, and we'll get to it, but first let's meet these people. Stephen Waits, an architect diagnosed with Parkinson's at 27 in the mid-1970s. In 2001, he participated in the first human trials of a promising treatment for PD. He talked about the effects it had on him in a 2006 BBC Radio 4 documentary called Chasing a Cure. In the mornings, prior to the surgery, I would crawl to the kitchen to take the first pills of the day. Whereas now I get out of bed and I walk as well as anyone. I walk as well as anyone. Wow, that's quite the transition. Well, yeah, so, so now he can walk as well as anybody. Yeah. 2009, Darren Calder and his wife Jane featured on the BBC TV documentary The Parkinson's Trial, A Miracle Cure, about a phase two trial of that same treatment that Stephen had. Huh. Darren's disappearing symptoms were captured as the treatment kicked in. After his second treatment, his body and brain began to wake up. Something's happening. I don't know what. I'm not reading into it, but something is definitely happening. Up. Down. Here, Darren is seated in a chair with his arms folded across his chest. And he's standing up and sitting down and standing up and sitting down with no balance issues. Down. And the more I'm doing it, the more I'm smiling. I'm thinking, this this ain't real. This ain't real. And now he's back. (laughs) Oh, dear. I never expected none of this, and I never seen it coming. That's pretty well amazing. To be honest with you, it scared me a little bit. When was the last time you felt like that? Before I had Parkinson's. That's really incredible. The changes have been remarkable. Oh, I mean, this, it's, they call it a miracle drug. And we're not just talking about one person. Now, here are two people saying they've experienced a miracle. And there's more, and there's more. Wow. Okay, Nikki, here's another one. Vicki Dillon was a nurse diagnosed at 35 with a tremor and a foot drag. She's my age, 48 today. She was in the same trial with Darren. I can't explain it and can't get our heads around it. But it was like a bloody miracle. I know I'm better. There's no doubt in my mind. I have to ask, what is it that we're talking about here? What is this trial? <laughs> well, it, at the heart of this story, is GDNF glial cell line derived neurotrophic factor. Professor Stephen Gill, a neurosurgeon at the University of Bristol's, made GDNF his life mission. He was the surgeon in both the trials that I've noted thus far. I personally believe that this drug is the best possible thing for Parkinson's disease. I, you know, I, I believe that it is the, as close to a cure as you're going to get. Okay, so that's quite the stamp of approval. Oh, yeah. I mean, like as close to a cure as you're going to get. Yeah. Okay. So GDNF, what is the story with that? Okay. So for any information that is science related, it it has to do with Parkinson's. I always go to the website scienceofparkinsons.com. I like that. Let them explain the complicated (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Glial cell line derived neurotrophic factor. Say that five times fast. (laughs) 
uh, glial cells are naturally occurring and absolutely vital to normal functioning of the brain. Everybody has them. Researchers first isolated uh, it in the lab in 1991. It was discovered in a cell culture of a rat glial cell, and that's where we get the glial cell line derived. Hmm. Neurotrophic factors. Now, here we have to harken back to its Greek roots, neuro, neuron, or nerve, and trophicos, uh, pretending to food or to feed. Okay. So neurotrophic factors are chemicals that nurture neurons and support growth. Okay, very sciencey, but I follow you. So what's Dr. Gill got to do with it? Well, Gill delivers the GDNF directly into the brain at the right spot to improve mobility in people with Parkinson's. Huh. And his biggest fans are those who've actually experienced it, like Vicky, who we heard from earlier. Stephen Gill is just fantastic. He's He's the nicest, most down-to-earth professor I've ever met, but um, he just wants this so badly and he, because he knows he can help us. This has been his life's work, and he's you know dedicated so much time, and he has had so much slack of the world, I think, um, the science world, and yet he still continues to fight on for us because he believes in it, and I believe in him. And Nikki, the, she's not the only person that, thinks Dr. Gill is amazing. Uh, the Cure Parkinson's Trust believes in Gill, and it has been helping to fund his GDNF research from the very beginning. CPT was founded by a handful of people with Parkinson's, including Tom Isaacs. Now, Tom was an enthusiastic and fierce advocate for Parkinson's disease. Uh, he was the voice that narrated that BBC4 documentary I talked to you about on GDNF. He opened the program discussing the F word of Parkinson's. Do you know what the F word is, Nikki? No, could, uh, oh, hold on. Are you allowed to say what the F word is here, or should I get the bleep button no, ready? No, this is good. The F word is five. Oh, okay. Why five? So for 25 years, we've been five years away from a cure. Oh, I see. Just five more years. Five. Five. Okay. I see. I see. We intend to end the longest five years in history. We're on a quest for a cure where the F word becomes a thing of the past, and so eventually does that P word and everything associated with it. Parkinson's. I want to be able to say I used to have Parkinson's. Man, isn't that the goal for all, eh? Whew. So Tom was the driving force behind the Phase 2 trial of GDNF in the UK, and the trust has been the financial backer of Professor Gill's research. The deputy CEO of the trust today is Helen Matthews. So... Tom Isaacs, in 2002, um, he'd been diagnosed by this stage for about seven years. He decided to walk around the coastline of Britain. And two days after he started walking, um, so he was still, I think, probably around Dagenham, a really good friend of his picked up the phone and said, Tom, it's all right, you can stop walking, they've cured it. (laughs) And it was the encouraging results that had come out from the pilot study that Steve Gill had run in Bristol, um, which had... uh, given GDNF to five people with Parkinson's and they were really, those initial five people were such pioneers, they were incredible people and and both Tom and I were very, very lucky to meet a number of them over the years, which was a real inspiration, I think. Um, However, you know, this was a pilot study and Steve had had encouraging results and for him, he he really wanted to find a way forward. and then uh, the next step after that is is that uh, it got picked up and, and larger trials happened in America using a different delivery system than Steve had been using. 
because the system he'd been using was incredibly clunky. It was involving a pump in the stomach and and trying to get the drug into the brain. And then, of course, you know, as was has been so well documented, those second trials were were called to a halt. Um, you know, for for very good scientific reasons. You know, there there wasn't a clear enough signal, and and I think that there were concerns. And so I think it is important that when when people are concerned scientifically that, that the science does stop because it's important that everybody investigates what's happened and why it's happened and and then can move forward with confidence. Um, so those that was in, gosh, 2003 and four, um, and then sort of as, as finishing, I suppose, in 2005. CPT came into being in 2005 um, and for us, it was a matter of we wanted to make sure that all avenues of research could move forward because as the GDF trials had been halted, you know, so similarly, Big Pharma was starting to leave the area of uh, the arena of Parkinson's. And, and with that, you know, the, the onward investment to actually make treatments a real thing for people. It's all very well having academic research that moves things forward. But, but unless you have got a partner that can actually manufacture and deliver and take things forward to clinics, you've reached another another blockade um so for us it was making sure that we could really help support the effort the fantastic work that the michael j fox foundation were doing in the us but try and, and build a similar effort to support the research that was going on in europe um and in the us so support support the best research wherever we could find it sure. and i have to say when we came into being you know the charity was set up by four individuals with parkinson's i'd been involved since 2002 but our, our vision was pretty clear let's let's try and find as many different routes as we can to find treatments that are going to slow down the disease stop it or reverse it and gdnf was very much part of that but we also needed to find a better way of getting it into the brain so we invested with steve gill um in the intervening years and 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 actually helped him to find ways to develop new delivery mechanisms which were then used in the bristol trial in 2012. you know it's really encouraging that there's such a strong international community committed to supporting each other and to looking together to get positive results. More and more, uh, and I've talked to a lot of people about this that run these organizations, the, mm-hmm. the collaboration. Collaboration, that's the right that's word That's happening globally is really, really uh, impressive and important and fairly new, mm-hmm. which is exciting. I imagine in this day and age with the technology that we have communicating between these organizations, it's probably getting so much easier. Well, and like leaders like Helen, like she's on calls with people uh, in Australia and in uh, Kyoto and in the U.S. And like she's she's constantly talking to people all over the world just to make sure that everybody knows what's going on. Right. Okay. so there are lots of uh, research and studies going on in the world of Parkinson's. For this specifically, for GDNF, what's involved in being in a trial? Well, it's quite an ordeal. Uh, In the Bristol Phase 2 trial, for instance, 196 subjects were screened over three years. Six were chosen to test the safety of everything. 42 participated in total. Now, this was called a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. Right. Okay, so this means only half will get the GDNF. The other half get the placebo. No one knows who's getting the real drugs, not even the doctors. Right. So not even the researchers know who's getting what. No. Okay. Interesting. So it's also uh, an experimental brain surgery, which takes about eight hours, to insert an experimental medical device, which Gil personally designed, to deliver an experimental treatment directly to the center of the brain. It's a lot of experimenting here, Nikki. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm really, I'm really interested. I'm really curious. Well, think about what it 
takes to say, yeah, I'll do that. I mean, these people are putting their lives on the line. And from my perspective, as somebody who has Parkinson's, what they've done is nothing short of heroic. Hmm. Question for you. Would you do the same? Yes. Yes. I would sign up in a heartbeat. I thought that you'd say that, you know, knowing each other and everything that we've discussed over the course of this podcast. But even just as an assumption that I could make, if you had the chance at an opportunity to improve your symptoms or to improve what you're experiencing, would you take it? I'm not surprised. And it's you said not that. even about me. It's about Parkinson's. Oh. I don't want anybody else to have to have it. Right. So if I can help the next generation not get it or not have it as bad, I'm all in. And, and the same holds true with all these people that are participating in mm-hmm. these trials. They know the cure is not going to come in their lifetime. But they are willing to, to sacrifice their life in hopes that it will improve their life, but more so that it just we bring an end to this Parkinson's shit. <laughs> well, it sounds like that's what Vicky was motivated to do along yeah, with the others. For sure. She was one of the first to undergo the procedure. She was part of that safety committee. Well, we were the guinea pigs basically to see um, if we would tolerate the um, surgery and the insertion of all this plumbing in our brains. And then if we would tolerate the, the actual drug. So we were, it was really quite scary when you think about it because it was an unknown entity because it was a different plumbing system than the first lot of patients. How much do you feel like a lab rat? Um, I do feel like a lab rat. I love the, I loved the, the medical doctors that were on that trial with us. I loved the team. I kind of wasn't frightened at all. It was really weird. And obviously I had the surgery and I remember waking up and feeling this massive bandage on my head and thought I died and it was my halo. <laughs> <laughs> God, is it? Um, Those were good I, drugs. Yeah, they were. I was completely do lally tap for a while when I came back round, but didn't have too much pain. You talk about the new plumbing in your in your head. What, tell us exactly what they did. Well, they cut me from my where your hair start the hairline to like the middle part of my head, so right down middle, um, and then put in four catheters that went deep into the, into my brain, and then you had another bit of plumbing that ran down the the side of your head to a port behind your left ear, which is where the infusions were given. So there was quite a lot of of stuff in there. So all that, and you still haven't tried this miracle medicine yet. When did that? No, you had to wait a good eight weeks, I think, post-surgery for everything to heal. Um, And then the first infusion, you only literally got a rain-sized drop of infusion put in but it took two and a half hours to infuse it so slowly and I didn't really feel anything at all but I would say by the time I'd had the second infusion and I was I was one of the ones that was on GDNF from the start but by the time I'd had the second infusion I noticeably felt different um I remember waking up a couple of days afterwards and thinking god I I, I got out of bed with no problems I went you know went downstairs there was no Parkinson's symptoms for about an hour or so and I thought oh my god and gradually everything started getting better and I love Vicky it is crazy though to hear someone talk about their own brain surgery and to walk you through that step by step oh yeah it's you know it's 
harrowing, right? Yeah, it is. You think about your own head and you're going, oh, okay. Now, now, now get this. So she went through all that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, her symptoms improved by 63%. Wow. I got my life back. Um, I reduced my drugs. I felt great. Do you still feel the effects? Well, my tremor still hasn't come back. Um, so that's one thing I've really noticed. I mean, I would say it's slightly, slightly coming back if I don't get stressed out or anxious, but nothing to what it was. I mean, it completely disappeared. Yeah, so now I'm not as good as I was at peak, but I would still say I'm probably better than I was before the trial. Darren also improved more than 50%. He was on the placebo for the first nine months. Oh, so he was on the placebo, so he didn't actually get the treatment, which means it was just in his mind that it was working? No, so the the first nine months, he saw some initial improvements, but then it tapered off, and he thought he was on placebo. After nine months, they gave everybody the GDNF. Oh. So so then he got nine months of GDNF, but after the second treatment kicked in, his symptoms improved. What was the best thing about GDNF? It's like having a life without Parkinson's. Before I had Parkinson's. That's what it was like. Wow. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, so a lot of us only dream of that, and you, you, you got a taste of it. Do, do, you, do you wish you hadn't tasted it? Because like, now you still have Parkinson's. No, because we won't be where we are now, will we? Yeah. What was yeah. the What was the hardest part? The hardest part was knowing that I couldn't get it no more. Yeah, that feels a little inhumane for the people that it worked so well for. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? It would come across as that because it is inhumane. So you're being given something and having it taken away, but. From from when I first went on the trial, I knew uh, there was hope, but no expectation. Darren was, um, I want to say he was about 12 years into ha- to his Parkinson's at that stage. Um, so in his late 40s, um, he was diagnosed around his 40th um, and his mobility was starting to decline. Um, he was already um, volunteering for trials, any trials that were taking place, wanting to do his bit um, to help find um, any new treatments or um, cures that were out there. Um, So we had agreed, him and I, that um, he could do anything but no brain surgery. (laughs) (laughs) um, And so when he went for his first um, meeting, he came back and said, oh, gosh, I, I need to do this trial. I've, it looks really exciting. And how did you find out that the drug f- trial failed? Oh, well, we were all, um, we all did a conference call. So to remind you, we needed to see a 20% difference at the end of the study between the treated group with GDNF versus the placebo group. So there needed to be a 20% difference, and that's what we needed to reach statistical significance at a group level. And the answer is that sadly we did not meet the primary endpoint. For me, it didn't, the drug trial actually didn't fail. That's the awful thing. I think it was more 
Well, I wouldn't even say it was the methodology. I would say that the things they looked for in us weren't necessarily the right things. And it could, if, it, if it had been designed differently, it wouldn't have failed. It failed because the drug wasn't strong enough. So the amount of GDMF that they gave um, wasn't strong enough for the time scale. So the primary endpoint was at nine months. Um, and if they'd you know, maybe had double GDNF going in through that period of time, um, it would have easily met its, its mark, which was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. I think it's a real shame because I think 100% of us had improvement. And as a patient group, I know that we're all absolutely heartbroken. Without any doubt whatsoever, um, in 100% of those participants' minds, we have got um, the cure for Parkinson's. It's a drug that can benefited so many people across the world. And it, it still can. I mean, they're still trying to get to do phase three. And we've been promised, yes, it'll get to phase three. We won't be the patient's trial mind it'll go to new patients so it is a bit gut-wrenching but that's the joys of being on a trial it's not all roses around your door it's it's the hard times as well as the good times what did the trial end up proving to you that there's no magic wand but um that people need to listen more to patients um clinicians researchers that need to to, to pay more attention to what we're saying, I think. We need to be part of the trial design in future, definitely. And they say we're part of the team. We'll make us a proper part of the team um, and take what we have, you know, what we find out ourselves, take it as more important than what they have been doing. Um, I think they could learn a lot from us, personally. You know, after Vicky explained everything that goes into having to undergo this treatment. I mean, it sounds really tough, but like Darren said, the hardest part was knowing that he wasn't going to have access anymore to the thing that had helped him so much. The procedure wasn't the hardest part. The hardest part was knowing it was being taken away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's like when you when you have a an answer and then that answer is taken away. Yeah. Like, how's that make you feel? Uh, and, but, but then he said, you know, I had hope, but no expectation. I felt if I didn't do it and I want nobody else to do it, then we ain't going to get no progression, are we? Mm-hmm. So the best way forward was for me to be one of six and push it along. So, and I guess you have to have that kind of attitude to participate in a trial like this. You yeah. Know. So what happened next? Well, the, the participants became advocates. There was a good chance that GDNF was going to be shelved. And we started shouting really loud about the fact that, you know, although the, the scientific evidence wasn't there, the patient... The patients were reporting um, huge, huge benefits. Um, and we still got um, participants that uh, are, well, you wouldn't even know that they've, they've got Parkinson's. They're, they're, those that were not on placebo, they received GDNF from the beginning. Um, they are much, much better in their Parkinson's symptoms. Vicky, Jane, Darren are now on a mission, Nikki, and they want to make sure that the next GDNF trial is considerate of the needs of the participants. Did they offer any counseling? No, and I think that would have been really, really good, both pre and post, because 
your hope obviously was built up to be so high i mean we were all really excited that the staff on the trial all of us because we all really believed that it was going to come through with flying colors and to have your hope taken away it's almost worse than when you first diagnosed i was devastated they've still got delivery systems in their heads and they've still got um you know, all the psychological effect of um, having had the benefits of GDNF and then it being ripped away from them. So they need ongoing support. Part of that support for me is is maybe a little bit of financial support to allow them to have a reunion once a year and um, and certainly to be kept better informed. If you, yeah. could, if you could sit down across from you know, uh, the, the companies, the Innovate, the, the Parkinson's UK, what, what would you tell them? What would you, what would Darren just say, like, just reason with them? I would probably say, let's just move on and get this sorted. Yeah, because we, we know, I know it's a cure and I know it's, uh, it's a d- disease modifying drug. So we just got to get it pushed over to the ne- next stage pushed on and how are you feeling today about that becoming a reality i'm probably 45 percent sure that it could happen and a year ago how sure were you a year ago probably one percent wow that's great that's great progress what yeah, is great progress what what specifically gives you that change in attitude and change of perspective? Because we've broken, we've knocked down quite a few doors with Parkinson's UK. You know, we not having none of it, but now they're starting to listen and wake up. Yeah, and, and they're starting to come together, but then they showed no belief. For a long time, nobody really wanted to talk to us. I think there was a, a big embarrassment factor. There was... Um, you know, the participants really felt that they'd been dropped off the edge of a cliff um, in terms of the trial had ended and and that was it for them. Um, but, you know, it will never be it for them. It's, it's the same as the phase one participants. When you've received something that is disease modifying, um, all you can think about is how do we get this back? You know, talking about having your hope taken away, like what Darren said, it's maybe the the hardest part and participants saying that they felt like they'd been dropped off the edge of a cliff. So how do we get this back again? How do we help people? Right. Yeah. You know, Vicky wrote a song uh, and Jane assembled the, the trial participants to help sing and help make a video. Seriously? Yeah. So the song Shine and they call themselves the GD and Fers. <laughs>
So they're raising money So you, with every download. So download it 100 times to Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, wherever you download your music. Uh, proceeds will go towards the next GDNF trial. And you can also donate at this website, raiseamillionforgdnf.org. But between each word, it's a dash. So it's raise-a-million-for-gdnf.org. Or Google it. That would be easier. <laughs> Hey, did I notice a celebrity cameo in that video, Larry? Oh, yeah, I'm in there. Because yeah. a guy that looked a lot like you, I thought I saw him in the music video for uh, that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, you'll see me. I, I am the star of the show. <laughs> hey, so um, is anyone else stepping up? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I talked to Steve Ford, who is the chief executive at Parkinson's UK. He recently wrote an editorial titled GDNF, Where Are We One Year On? I, I mean, I, I, I wanted to be able to assure that group of people that, that Parkinson's UK still thinks there's a future for GDNF if, if we can get the right trial in, in front of us to fund. There could be a future. That's exciting. A very public gesture. Seems like I heard, though, a really big if in there. Oh, yeah, I heard that, too. So I pressed on. You wrote in the article, if the next attempt can be structured in the right way, with a strong chance of success, we're ready and willing to bring our funds to the table. It's why we exist. What do you mean by the right way? What would that look like? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making lots of positive and, and noises about the, the next GDNF trial, but it has got to be something that, yeah, I, you know, learns the lessons of the first trial and is well-designed and set up for success. You know, I think... The, the, the learning from the first one is that if it is um, ambiguous in it, its kind of results, if it's not um, big enough to, to, um, to have a kind of convincing result, then the danger is that, you know, in three years' time, we have another group of GDNFers um, who are equally kind of frustrated and feel in, in, in limbo. So, you know, we... we, we Go through, and, and either this would be a massive investment that we'd be making as a charity, and we'll want to ensure that um, that it, it's properly peer reviewed, that we're really confident that the trial is structured in the right way. The people who are who are wanting to do the trial have got the right experience and the right skills are, are around them, so that the trial is, is is set up for success. How are you defining success? Um. A, a trial that um, stands every chance of delivering clear results in a way that will then be picked up by the people who will need to take the baton um, on from us. You know, those those large pharmaceutical companies who need to put the money into the big trials, they need to feel that this has been done in, in a robust, clear, conclusive way so that the data that comes out of it is, 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 is valuable to, to, to them. And you talked about the team that's needed in order to put this together to make it right to to to, to prepare it for success. Do you have you identified who all those players are? Yes, I mean we, we we're in discussion with the the, the, the key players um, here, um, and and obviously there were the people who were involved in in, in the first trial who who are keen to move things 
move things forward. So yeah, we're, we're, we're talking to that group. We've been very clear about what we need to see in, in terms of an application. We've made it clear that we want to see an application. We don't normally as a charity go out and, 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 and tell people what, what they should be, um, provide the level of support that we've provided to, to, to this group of people. But we've said, you know, this is what we need to see. This is what needs to be in the application. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're ready to review it as soon as it lands on our, our desk. And if it is right, if it looks perfect, what kind of financial investment are you willing to make? You called it massive. What does that mean? Yeah, well, massive for us. I mean, we we spend um, around eight and a half million pounds. That's what, 11, 12 million dollars a year on, on research. Um, we haven't seen the application yet but we envisage it's going to be you know in the order of an and our annual spend on on research so that's that's significant and more than we've ever spent um before um it would be great if there are other people who want to um to, to fund it alongside us and, and we hope that's that could be um achieved um if, if we do get the green lights, then, you know, we're going to have to go out and inspire the community to, 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 to raise money um, to, to support this. And I think, you know, I think we should be able to do that because of the interest that there is in this, this trial. So they've got a plan. They've got a team in mind. They have an idea of the support that they need. They need the community to help secure enough funding. They need a lot, but it sounds like they have a plan. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they're, they're ready to go. So what about setting up the trial so participants are looked after? Well, I brought that up to Steve at Parkinson's UK, but I also asked Helen over at the Cure Parkinson's Trust because I think this is really important. I was told by several GDNFers uh, that despite the experimental brain surgery and the experimental delivery system and the experimental drug and being filmed by a documentary and the trial being labeled a failure, they were offered no counseling before, during, or after. Uh, they were not really communicated with, and they felt discarded. Is that on your radar, and, and how are we addressing that moving forward? Yeah, I, th- I think we've learned a lot. Of, I mean, we we had never funded a trial of this um, size um, before. And oh, I say size, you know, this kind of complexity um, I guess. And I think, you know, we were all kind of learning from this. I mean, I think the first thing to, to say, and this isn't, I'm not hiding behind anything here, you know, it, it, it isn't our job as a funder of a clinical trial to ensure all of those things are, are, are you know, it's not up to us to, to, to provide that kind of direct support for, for people. But I think there are lessons to be learned around how when we're commissioning, funding those kind of trials, that we really are making sure that those kind of issues are built in to the the, the study, the trial design, the, the kind of follow up, and, and 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 all of that. That, that you know, and making sure that that people have experience of going through these kind of trials are able to shape the design of future ones. They weren't offered any counselling during that, and they weren't really communicated to, and they kind of felt discarded for a while. Is that on the trust's radar, and are we? Is that being addressed as we move forward? Larry, I think it's a really, really important area. And I think that we, I think there are, there are a number of things that, again, with hindsight, it would have, it would have been fantastic to, to do differently. And I think n- nobody 
everybody was very, very, very aware of the participants and their need. And it was a very complicated set of circumstances um, with the conclusion of the trial, given that there had been the potential potential forward route with Big Big Pharma. Um, and then that them cho- them choosing to sort of step away from from neurology in in in, in its entirety um you know which which was a, a yeah, real we can get into blow. pfizer another time <laughs> yeah it was a it was a real blow and i think you know i think everybody did the very best they could at the time larry i think again planning for the end of clinical trials regardless of whether they're surgical trials or any other trial is massively important and i think that's where again in in the last um a few years i've seen a real shift in terms of the way that people are communicated about their results everybody is now getting their own individual results which they did in the gdnf trial too uh, but i think also that uh trying to be very mindful of the support that people might need particularly with the more invasive treatments now in hindsight it does sound like they've learned a lot about things that they could do better a second time around or a next time around. And that really includes improving communication. Well, yeah. And, and listen, in order to learn, you, you got to fail a thousand times to find great success, you know, uh, and to find a cure like Parkinson's, you just don't happen to do it right the first time. Right. But they seem open to learning and growing. Yep. And uh, if, you, if you can grow from each of those attempts, uh, then we will get closer and closer and closer. And Helen and Steve are, are committed to that and making sure that the patient patient's voice is heard and that our concerns are met. Patient voice within the Parkinson's community is, is yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. It's, it's, and, I, and I would want to say it's the DNA of, of Parkinson's UK. It's, you know, I, I always want to say that when any member of staff comes to work here, there'll be a person with Parkinson's on the interview panel, um, that people with Parkinson's then de- deliver their welcome day, the, in- the induction day. And, and that's, that's, that should be the way of, of, of working. So just that, that, that sense in which the, the Parkinson's community kind of drives everything. And that's been really important for us as as we think about the future of, of GDNF. We haven't just seen it as you know yet another failed trial. You know, we, we we you can't help, you can't fail to be inspired by the messages you're hearing from people who are saying, you know, this is there's something going on here. Um, so yeah, of course that's 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 really important. I think that this is something that's growing in importance, Larry. I think. It's something that Tom always championed. I think we patients have a role to play. I think we can assist in the journey towards a cure. If we can just bridge this gap, forge a relationship with the scientific community, then maybe their know-how, combined with our passion and our insight, can finally beat this thing. It's all about shaking hands. Absolutely, he did. That's why we have the Tom Isaacs Award, which is to celebrate a researcher who really embraces patient involvement in in their work um, and actually really listens and takes inspiration from people living with the the condition, because that is, is vital, absolutely vital. Parkinson's UK is still awaiting for that application for the study. They hope to get that in short order and start recruiting for the trial by the end of 2020 or by early 2021. Okay, so here's a question for you. What do you think about the possibility of GDNF expanding 
outside of the UK, elsewhere in the world, maybe here in North America. So they did a phase two trial that was in the United States uh, between, before the Bristol trial, oh. phase two. Uh, they had to halt it midstream, uh, which was unfortunate, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, including some things that were happening in, in rats and monkeys and uh, that may or may not have contributed to some side effect issues. Hmm. Helen from the Cure Parkinson's Trust told me that it was for very good scientific reasons. There wasn't a clear enough signal and and I think that there were concerns. And so I think it is important that when when people are concerned scientifically that, that the science does stop because it's important that everybody investigates what's happened and why it's happened and and then can move forward with confidence. So so Helen is adamant that you know GDNF is one of the things that we should be exploring, but we need to pursue all avenues of research and advance them in parallel. So that we you know we do try and explore the small molecules, that we do try and explore the gene therapy, that we do make sure that we're really focusing on on the repurposing that we do so much of here at CPT in terms of, you know, cofflinctuses and diabetes treatments and high cholesterol treatments, you know, making sure that we're moving everything forward because because we know that Parkinson's is a syndrome, not one disease. We have got to identify treatments for all sorts of Parkinson's. Uh, but there is an application uh, for a 2022 study in the U.S. for GDNF, and they're going to put the GDNF in a virus and implant the virus in your brain. What? And then release the GDNF that way to see if that's a different way we could actually uh, deliver GDNF to the right spot. Science, man. Love it, right? That's wild. That's science. (laughs) Each week, Larry and his wife, Rebecca, talk about what they've learned from the episode. So Darren's wife, Jane. Yes. They had an an agreement that he could do any trial that he wanted, but no brain (laughs) surgery. And then he went and did brain surgery. Um, we, We haven't really talked about that much. I've not done a lot of trials. I've done some, but not not anything invasive like that. Mm-hmm. But we've not really talked about it either. When you befriended Dr. Ferrer and started talking about that, it's been a while, but we did talk about that a bit. And if you were interested in participating in the research and whatnot, and you were in a way because you had your genome mapped mm-hmm. for his research. I don't think we talked, this is okay, that's not okay kind of conversation, but there certainly was an expression of support on my part for considering trials moving forward. I know you feel very strongly about it. I know as a family, we've committed to contributing to the Parkinson's community and helping as much as possible. Yeah, but we have to consider that we have a 10-year-old and... For sure. It's different. But if you feel strongly about something and there's a greater good at stake, then I support that. I think it's a, let's talk about it as they as the possibilities come. Um, I think we're getting closer and closer to finding some answers and that you can sort of feel the momentum. You can feel the organizations like rallying together, like, okay, it's like a drumbeat. It's getting faster and faster and faster. I think something that has to do with that, though, is that the expectations of the community have shifted a little bit of let's slow the progress, let's manage symptoms better, let's figure out a way to uh, detect it earlier so that fewer people, especially young onset, fewer people 
progress very long or they catch it earlier and that there's some sort of intervention that we can do a little earlier. That's the kind of thing that these big trials and these really important trials like GDNF would would help with. So even not finding a you know a cure cure mm-hmm. you're slowing the progression of the symptoms. It's the most effective way that anybody's found on our planet as of right now to do that. I asked Helen about cure because they're the cure Parkinson's trust. Right. Like that's a pretty audacious title. Like if you you rethinking that at all? She goes, no, you got to go for the, you got to shoot for the moon. Uh, but she goes, uh, you know, we define cure the way Tom defined cure, and for everybody that's different. If you've had Parkinson's for a long time, you're not looking for your Parkinson's to be removed from your body. What you're trying to do is make sure it doesn't happen to another generation. Uh, so figure out a way to stop it, or just you know, detect it and stop it before it onsets. Right. Um, if you are newly diagnosed, you would like a way to stop it in its tracks. Uh, and so everybody has a different concept of, you know, what cure is. Well, think about all the progress that the HIV AIDS community has made, where it used to be a death sentence within a few months and then within a few years. And now people are living for decades right. after diagnosis because they've figured out ways to manage it and make it very livable. They clearly understand how it's transmitted and how you can stop it. And then you figure out a way to help the people who already have it to manage it and live a high quality of life for as long as they would have normally. Well, and next episode, we're going to talk to Dr. Ray Dorsey, who uh, is one of the authors of the book Ending Parkinson's. And it's a, an action guide for everybody. And as part of that, he talks about the how the AIDS community rallied together and how we also defeated polio. And, and now it's time for Parkinson's to you know, follow suit. But polio had the March of Dimes, and the AIDS had all the protests and doing sit-ins in pharmaceutical companies and in government offices. And he goes, we need a million-man march for Parkinson's. We need to get people's attentions. We need to rattle their cages. There is certainly enough drive and passion, smarts, big hearts, and professional skills, decent amount of money, and a lot of fundraising connections in this community, and that can become a reality. Yeah, for sure. I love you. I love you, too. Next time on When Life Gives You Parkinson's. You are the reason this podcast exists. I didn't know that at all. Yes. So I was listening to you on the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast when I was newly diagnosed saying uh, Parkinson's is a pandemic. And if people with Parkinson's don't start sharing their stories, there's no way we can ever raise enough money to do enough research to find a cure. And... That struck me because I've been a storyteller all my life and I hadn't told anybody about my Parkinson's. Um, I've been in radio for 30 years. I was hiding it. Um, And at that moment, I decided to tell the world. And that's why I created this podcast. Well, I have goosebumps. That might be the nicest thing anyone has said to me uh, in quite some time. I'm moved uh, by that. I think it shows the potential, you know, to make connections to people that, you know, we've never actually met and we never even spoke to one another until uh, just now and I had uh, no idea and the reason we wrote the book 
was to galvanize uh, a million Larry Giffords uh, throughout the world uh, to change the course of the disease. This episode is dedicated to the life, the courage, the laughter, and the advocacy of Tom Isaacs. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast, written and produced by me, Larry Gifford, and Nikki Reitmeyer. Rebecca Gifford is my wife and partner in Parkinson's. Our story editor is Dila Velazquez, and our sound design by Rob Johnson. We also want to hear from you. You can record a voice message for us at speakpipe.com slash when life gives you Parkinson's. Our presenting sponsor is Parkinson Canada, parkinson.ca. One of the programs Parkinson Canada offers is a confidential information and referral line. So if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to info at parkinson.ca or call toll-free 1-800-565-3000. Parkinson Canada colleagues are there for you. They're great listeners, and they can answer questions on a huge range of topics. Thank you to Vicki Dillon, Darren and Jane Calder, Helen Matthews of the Cure Parkinson's Trust, Steve Ford of Parkinson's UK, BBC Radio 4, and Passionate Productions for BBC. Special thanks also to our promotional partners, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at spotlightyopd.org. And in the U.S., Parkinson's IQ Plus U from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Go to michaeljfox.org slash pdiq. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, give the show a five-star rating and please share in the comments why you recommend listening to the podcast. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us at parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.